0: Hey, what's up? It's your boy Anthony Cass Clark, and welcome to another edition of Thoughts Over Coffee Daily. Good people of the world, what is up? Hope that all is well. All is well on this side. Hope that you had a great holiday, the Fourth of July, a time to kind of just take a break and relax and celebrate with family and you know barbecue and just cool it, man. Just be thankful for life, man. You know we won't get into all the politics of Fourth of July because uh, people have different feelings about it, but uh, so do I. <laughs> so moving forward, though, happy Fourth of July, all that good stuff. Now back to it. Today I was having a conversation with uh with one of my boys, shout to Joe over there at Six Thirty, um Designs, and uh, we were speaking about um Tyler Perry, and I told him that I actually wanted to put this. Tyler Perry Oprah Masterclass out uh because Tyler Perry is someone who is uh totally misunderstood a lot of times, especially in the black community. I think in recent days he has now risen to this uh point that his his brand is recognizable and people respect him now, but early on a lot of people had a lot of questions about his brand. And a lot of people in these prominent media spaces uh, didn't have the best takes on Tyler Perry, but that has started to change and has started to transform uh, because I think now his mission has become um, prevalent. And his mission, his mission has become transparent and I think people recognize that. So uh, with that being said today, I kind of want to put out the Tyler Perry masterclass. I feel like it's a great story and I don't want to, water it down by calling it a story, but I feel like Tyler Perry has great experiences. Uh experiences of a a turbulent life that he has transformed into a successful one. Uh Tyler Perry is one of those special ones, man. One of those special ones. There's a couple people that I can name that I call special ones, and Tyler Perry is definitely one of them. So uh yeah without further ado well, yes, with further ado, because I want to speak to you about sharing this podcast with people as always. So do me a favor, share the podcast, screenshot it, tag somebody in it, tag me in it, C-A-S-S S S four Q all Instagram. I appreciate you guys for listening. I appreciate you guys for sharing it because I know you're doing it because I see the numbers jumping up and I really thank you for it. Um, quick announcement, thoughts over coffee t-shirts. Um no coffee no talking t-shirts are coming very soon uh doing a photo shoot for that really soon with wifey we'll put those out we'll push that out um thoughts over coffee live is coming back planning that right now it's going to be a very special addition also to that um doing a little we're taking it up a notch just let's just say that We, we we're heating it up so i'll let you know all the information as it comes available but without further ado here it is Tyler Perry oprah masterclass
1: there was one moment that made me think hmm i've arrived i was coming out of the back door at a theater on broadway the color purple was playing and oprah tina turner and myself we all came out the back door first tina goes out and i hear tina 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 they're going crazy then Oprah goes, out there, Oprah, Oprah, the crowd's going nuts. And then I walk out thinking I'm just going to go to the car and get in the car. And they're screaming, Tyler, Tyler. Did I hear Oprah, Tina and Tyler? Whoa, something has changed.
2: I remember that night so well. Ah, Tyler, you made it long before then. Let me tell you that five number-one films at the box office, 19 stage plays, over 400 episodes of television, all created, written, directed, and produced by one man, Tyler Perry. It's been almost 20 years now since Tyler Perry's tough-love granny, Medea, first made her appearance on stage and became a cultural phenomenon. Since then... Mr. Tyler Perry has become almost an industry unto himself. And Tyler's success is in direct contrast to a childhood in New Orleans filled with so much heartbreak and abuse. He was, in his words, a child of never. But thankfully, Tyler was blessed with a handful of people who loved him deeply, and it was this love that allowed him to imagine a larger world of what is possible. Everybody has a story, and there is something to be learned from every experience. Use your life as a class. This is Masterclass with Tyler Perry.
1: I think from a kid, I knew that I had something people could call it gifts. In my neighborhood, they say, that boy is something. He's going to be a preacher because if you were black in my neighborhood in New Orleans and you spoke well, you were going to be a teacher or a preacher. So so I, I got elected to be the preacher. I always knew that there was something there because the reaction to things that I would do if I were making fun of someone or imitating my mother or imitating uh, my sisters or my uncle's The laughter in the room, or when they go and pull me from in front of the television because we had visitors for Mardi Gras and they wanted me to dance. So they pull me out and throw them in front, throw me in front of everybody. We got Deacon Jones coming over, come on in the living room and dance around for him. So I always knew that there was something that I had an ability to make people laugh, feel good. But I tell you what, though, the most important for me was my mother that I could be a source of joy for her, that I could make her smile, that I could make her laugh, that I could tell a joke or that I could dance and see her smile and laugh, that's what meant the world to me. My mother, Maxine, was a woman who was so soft-spoken sometimes and so kind-hearted and so gentle. I remember her almost getting in an accident because there was a bird that had gotten hit by a car was in the middle of the street. I watched her. I'm peeking over the dashboard. I was so little at the time, and I'm watching her go to the front of the car and get that bird and take him home and nurse him back to health. That's the kind of mother I had growing up, that kind of compassion. But also, she had another side to her that was very just... She could flip on you, man. She could love you and beat the hell out of you and then have you at the hospital crying beside you all all within an hour. You know, so it, it, it just shows the complexity of what kind of woman she was. But her strength in life became my strength. Every Friday and Saturday nights were pure hell in our house. But Sunday morning, she would wake me up and we'd go to church. And I'd see my mother, this woman who had two nights before, being hit and in tears and crying and upset, she would be in church, and there would be another tear, another kind of tear, a tear of joy, of happiness. I remember asking her as a little boy, Mama, why are you crying? She would say, because God is so good, baby. And I wondered as a little boy, how can God be good with all that we're going through? And my uncle was the pastor in the church, and he would say, child, if you pray hard enough, God's going to make it all right for you. And in my little boy years, and my little boy mind, I wanted to test that out. So I remember going home, and I prayed, and I said, God, if you're real, send me some little people to take care of. And when I say little people, I thought the people in the television, in our floor model color television, in our living room, I thought the people who were on the television actually lived inside of the box. Kids' imagination. And it seems like an impossible prayer for God to answer, to send me some of the little people from the television. Well, I was coming home from school one day and the lady across the street was moving away and she said, we're moving and we can't take these. Can you give them to your son? And my mom said, sure, I'll give them to him. I come home and there's a a three-story house with two parakeets inside, Fifi and Pierre, and they spoke. I thought for sure God had answered my prayer. And from that moment even until now, I always remember the parakeets. I always remember my uncle saying, Jesus is going to make a way, child, just pray. There's been moments in my life when things have gotten so dark that I thought, God, are you hearing me? God, are you there? God, are you hearing me? But there was never a moment where I thought there wasn't a God. I don't know how to walk through a garden and see every kind of flower and rose and butterfly and not feel goosebumps, and not feel God. I don't know how to sit in a director's chair and look around and see a sea of people working for me and not know how to feel God and feel gratitude. I thank God for my mother and my grandmother and my great-grandfather and my grandfather. They were all ministers in the church who, no matter how bad things got, They told me to always pray, always believe, and that's where my faith has come from. My mother, who didn't have some great legacy, she didn't have millions of dollars to leave me, but what she did was she taught me about God, which has been my rock, which has been my sword and shield in every moment, in every bit of pain, in tremendous sadness, And in overwhelming joy, he's been my rock. I remember watching, this is why this is such a circle, full circle moment, as Oprah would call it, watching the Oprah show, and she said it was cathartic to write things down, and I started writing that day. That catharsis, that moment of writing those characters, to putting putting them on paper, became my own examining board for my own life. They became my own model. I could look at them and see and say, this character's going through this. Well, why are they bitter? And when you look for the motivation, you know, sometimes you hear actors say, what is my motivation? And we all make a joke about it. But in writing, you look for the motivation in characters. Why is this character doing this? Why is the character saying this? Why is he moving here? Why is he going there? And as I started looking at the motivations of the characters that were fictional on paper, I started looking at the motivations in my own life, which became my very bridge to healing. I had been in hell in my house since I was a little boy and had grown up from being a very hurt and frustrated, wounded child being raised by wounded children all the way to a teenager who was very, very angry and didn't know why, very frustrated, didn't know why, full of rage, full of rage. And to see the Oprah show where she said it's cathartic to write things down and to see this woman on television who looked like she was a relative of mine with her brown skin. There weren't a lot of positive role models, but to see her every day, I'd run home from school because she was coming on at 3 o'clock in New Orleans, then I'd run home from school to see her and listen to what she had to say. All of those wisdom pearls being dropped. In, in the darkness of my life, one of those acorns that she dropped took uh, root and became life and helped me grow into the man I am today. At that point, I had not thought about a creative career. I had not thought about writing plays. I hadn't thought about any of that. I had only thought that I was going to be an architect, and that's what I was going to do in life, and I was going to be happy, and everything was going to be great. And that was what I was eventually trying to work towards. But that one moment of writing, that one moment of taking a second to allow myself to speak through the art, changed my life. I'd written some sort of a form of a play, a live play, and a friend of mine found it. He said, man, this is a really good play. And I thought, hmm, maybe that's what it is. I didn't know that this is what I was supposed to be doing, but I thought, maybe it is a play. His words were life in my ears. They were, this is a really good play. This is a really good play. And I heard that, and I, coming from where I come from, there wasn't a lot of encouragement. So. To have him say that, I thought, okay, maybe I should move to Atlanta and try to put that show up. It was Black Spring Break. We called a Freaknik at the time. I went up for um, a weekend just to see what the town was like. And I saw black people doing well for the first time in my life. I saw black doctors and lawyers and businessmen and families together and going to restaurants. And, you know, I realized that my family, we'd never been to a restaurant. We never sat down at the dinner table together. So to see black people doing this, I thought, I'm in the promised land. So went back, got my clothes, packed up my Hyundai, and moved to Atlanta and said, I'm going to work, save money, and I'm going to put this play on at the 14th Street Playhouse. And that's what I did. It felt good, but it also was quite scary to do it because I had put all my car payment rent, every dime I had, my tax returns, everything, in this play. And I thought 1,200 people would show up. I just knew it. And only 30 showed up. Lost everything I had, rent, car payment, everything. And so I thought, is this it? And the thing that was the most frustrating is because I was praying through it. And I, I knew, I knew that same voice that brought those parakeets to me, that same voice said, this was going to be okay. This was going to be okay. And it wasn't. And even with that, I, I must say, because I hear my mother's voice in the back of my head saying, you always could have come home. But going back to New Orleans would have represented for me returning to a darkness that I didn't want to be in in anymore. No matter what the consequences, I was coming out. I was going to find some light. I was going to live freely. I was going to live better. I wanted to live in peace, not in pieces. So I couldn't return back to New Orleans, couldn't go home. I had to make it work. So this went on and on and on and on, and... I thought, this is just crazy. Why am I in this position? Because every time I would get an opportunity to do the show again, i go to my job, tell the boss, listen, I need time off to do this play. And they're like, nope, can't have any time off. You just started here. And I would go back to my desk and i say a prayer. I'd say, God, if I'm supposed to do this, show me a sign. And I would hear that voice say, quit. So I would quit. And I'd go out and do the show. Nobody would show up. The show wouldn't make any money. 92, 93, 94... 95, 96, 97. But in 1998, after seven years of perseverance, seven years of not giving up, seven years of believing, seven years of praying, 1998, things turned around. I was 28 years old. I thought I was old. (laughs) I was 28 years old, and I'd had enough. I was done. I was walking away from it. And I get a phone call saying, we have this opportunity to do this show at the House of Blues. I'm like, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Well, I got talked into it. When I went down there, the show's to open that night. It is the coldest night in Atlanta. It was March 12, 1998, freezing. And I'm complaining because the heat has gone out in the building. I'm thinking, we're supposed to have people. Nobody's going to come to this play. And and that same voice that said quit, that same voice said, shut up, now get up and look out of the window. I got up from the table where I was putting the makeup on as old man Joe walked over to the window and there was a line around the corner trying to get into the place. And I had tears in my eyes, and I I sat down. I'm like, God, all these years of struggling, all of it. What was it all about? What that taught me very quickly is that anything that comes easily may not be as appreciated as much as the things that you work hard for, that you struggle for, that you pray for. So I walked out on that stage and saw that crowd packed to the rafters. And then on their feet given a standing ovation at the end of the show and from that show to ones i did maybe two months ago still sold out
2: in 2010 tyler came on the oprah winfrey show to speak publicly about surviving childhood abuse one of the most powerful shows i've ever done A lot of people wondered why Tyler had waited until he was 40 to speak out about the physical abuse he suffered at the hands of his father and the sexual abuse he'd endured from others. His answer, so tender and human and respectful. He wanted to wait, he said, until his mother was no longer here on Earth when she passed away because it would be too painful for her to relive those tragedies. Since then... Tyler has been able to find peace through the healing power of forgiveness. So it got so bad that as a little boy you slit your wrist. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I was I was suicidal because I thought I just what is the point in living? Even during that time the sense of hopelessness the sense of this is never going to get any better. God, I look back now and I'm so grateful that I didn't succeed in my attempt at taking my own life because it does get better. It does change. You can make it through. But in in the moment of it, when I'm sitting there and the man I thought was my father was raging and functional alcoholic and beating my mother and beating me and belittling, just saying all kinds of horrible things all day, all night long, I thought death was a welcome relief.
2: It wasn't until last night when I was talking with the producers about the story that I first heard that you had been beaten so badly that one time you blacked out for three days. I remember holding on to a chain-link
1: fence, and I'm holding so tight my hands are bloody as he's hitting me, and I'm I'm holding, just trying to hold on for my life. I was so enraged about it in my mind. I see myself running from me. Wow. And I couldn't get the little boy... I couldn't get the little boy to come back to me. I couldn't get myself to come back to me. And I think I died that day, and I don't under, I, I, it took me so long to understand what happened when I, I finally got there. From a child, I had always known that this man despised me, and I could not figure it out for the longest. I could not figure out why he hated me so. And every action was about his hatred or his disdain for me. And I remember asking my mother, as a little boy, is he my father? And she would always say the same thing. She would say, I hate to tell you this, but that's your father. So on her deathbed, I'm 40 at the time, I ask her again, is he my father? Because something inside of me knew, just knew, that same voice would not let it rest. She said, I hate to tell you this, but he is your father. Well, she died, and it wouldn't settle in me. So I did a paternity test with my brother and myself, and we don't have the same father. And I thought, okay, I'll give it the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he's his, and I'm not. So I did one directly with him, he's not my father. I'm sure she had all of her own reasons for why she didn't tell me, She came from a very different time. I remember horror stories about someone breaking in the house before I was born. I don't know what the full reason is, why she didn't tell me. I don't even know if she knew. But if I could wake her up to have one conversation, that would be the one. After sharing and talking about abuse, I received thousands, perhaps at this point, maybe millions of letters from people who could relate, who understood, who got it, and who have moved on and are stronger because of sharing my story. That is the power of having this kind of platform and having a voice. From the beginning of my career, when I started doing the very first play, it was about adult survivors of child abuse. But rather than using my own name to talk about surviving all kinds of abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse. I used different characters' names because I didn't want people to know it was me. There was so much shame in it, especially in that time around the late 90s. But finding the power and the strength to stand in front of all your pain and say, yes, I've been through all of those things. Yes, that happened. But look at me don't look at that, none of it defined me, none of it destroyed me, none of it took anything from me. When I finally sat down and looked at it, I realized that I had gained a lot. I had gained compassion and sympathy. I had gained wisdom. I had gained encouragement. I had gained strength from just being able to tell my story and stand in front of it. So many men will not talk about this. And I'm telling you, this is what is destroying us. Mm -hmm. We're taught, you're a boy, be strong, shut up, do not talk, boys don't cry. And we hold all of this stuff inside. The Bible talks about being angry, but sin not. I think that when you've been a child of never, when you've been a child who has endured so much hell, so much heartache, it is so important to not become bitter. Bitterness is like acid. It, it eats away at whatever's holding it over time. I learned over the years that it was okay to be angry. That was a great relief for me when I realized it's okay for me to be angry at what happened. It's okay for me to be upset. It's okay for me to be frustrated. It's okay for me to have struggles forgiving the very perpetrators. But what it was not okay is for me to be bitter Because what I learned is that the actual bitterness would do more harm to the host than the people that had done all of the horrible things. Forgiveness can be tough if you don't understand why it is important to do it. Number one, you have to understand that forgiving is clearly for you and not the other person. It is about setting yourself free, your soul free, not carrying the burden of it. It's Yes, it's, it's extremely difficult to do, but so important because if you don't do it, you're chained to the tormentor. And forgiveness is the most single, most freeing thing that you can do in your life. What is forgiveness? To me, it is really, truly letting go of it, letting go of what was done, letting go of how it made you feel, and letting go of all the consequences that you've suffered from them, And when you do that, you take the power away from it. You take the power out of it. And sure, you're still left with the scars. You're still left with trying to balance it and figure it out. But more than anything, you're left with a, a clean slate to start all over. It's raw. It needs stitches. It needs bandages. It needs a lot of things to heal. But you're left open so that something good can grow there again. Yes, I still take care of the man that I thought was my father, absolutely, because, number one, my mother asked me to because she loved him. And secondly, as terrible as he was and as horrible as he was, he never once left us. We were never hungry. And every time he'd go to work all week, he'd bring all the money home. So... In return I am giving him what he gave to me. I had shelter, I had food. He has shelter, pretty nice shelter, and any food that he wants to eat, but also what I missed from him being in relationship is also what he's missing from me now. So he doesn't have everything. He has what's easy.
2: The business part of show business can be complicated, even for some of the most seasoned Hollywood executives. So try to imagine what a young, inexperienced, African-American outsider from the South might be up against. But when the studio execs told him no, while trying to make his first television series, House of Pain, Tyler did two things. First, he took a breath. Then he took inspired, groundbreaking action that challenged the television business, and he won.
1: I said never argue with what is, and I believe that. It is what it is. Don't argue with it. Why are you arguing with what is? That doesn't mean that you don't change it. It just means that you don't argue with it. If this is the system that has been set up, if this is the way it's designed to go, okay, fine. I'm not going to sit around arguing about it. I'm just going to find another way. Case in point with me is television. I was told that in television you do one episode and you make that pilot and you wait to get picked up. Well, I didn't want to do that. I went to Atlanta and I shot 10 episodes of a show. And they're like, Tyler, why are you shooting 10? Like, I don't know. I want to do 10. I did those 10 episodes and the UPN and WB merged, leaving many affiliates without programming. And they were really ticked off about it. So they were calling around saying, we need more than one episode. Who has more than one? Well, I had 10. And that 10 episodes went on the air at House of Pain and did really well, higher than the lead-in and show that was there originally. And then I asked, well, how do I get to syndication? Well, you need 100 episodes. And I had all these offers. One person wanted to offer 20 episodes. One wanted to offer 30. One wanted to offer 40. I said, you know, I want 100. Like, Tyler, that's not going to happen. Well, TBS comes along and they said, okay, here's 90 episodes to make it 100. So a whole new model was invented called the 1090 model because I saw what was, didn't argue with it, just went another direction. First time I ever came to uh, Hollywood to take some meetings, I uh, went to all these different studios and networks and I'm told black people who go to church don't go to movies, so we don't think your movie idea is going to work. It was a wake-up call, but it also... As negative and horrible as it was, it was also a great thing for me because those kinds of moments become few for me. They become the thing I need to say, I'll show you. I've been imitating my mother and my aunt for many, many years. And when I had done uh, Old Man Joe, I had done that character in my first play for a while. And I wanted to try my hand at a female character. And after watching Eddie Murphy do the clumps, I thought, huh, let me try this and see what happens. And I modeled her on some of the funniest women that I knew. Still hate the costume very much to this day. I I don't like putting it on. I don't like wearing it. It's uncomfortable. It's annoying. But what gives me great joy and outweighs that is what the audience gets and when they're seeing it and how the joy the joy that it puts on their faces. I think what resonates the most about Medea is pretty simple. This grandmother was around on every corner. When I grew up, there are Latin Medeas, there are Jewish Medeas, there are Italian Medeas. There are so many different medias around the world. She wasn't politically correct. She would say what's on her mind. She kept you straight and would do whatever it took to make sure you learned your lesson. But she's not around anymore, so I think that a lot of times people are waxing nostalgic for this kind of tough-love grandmother. And to see this kind of success, even after 18 years, it still blows my mind. I don't believe in failure. I believe that whatever... You are to do if you do it to the best of your ability. There are lessons and nuggets in there that are success. No, now I don't know how you rate it or judge it, but. I don't believe in failure. Everything is used. I had two critics sat on the same row at the Kodak Theater and watched one of my shows. One said it was lovely. They, it was wonderful. They laughed. They had a great time. The other critic said it was the worst thing they'd ever seen. It was horrible. It was awful. And it taught me a lot about critics at that moment. They're both sitting, they both saw the same show, but one it spoke to because of his experience and where he's come from, and the other it didn't. So I learned to just tell my stories, to be honest and true to them, to be faithful in my storytelling, to make sure that my audience knows I'm still here and still speaking right to you, speaking our language, and that's what matters. I, I don't want to do television just to do television. I don't want to do a movie to do just to do a movie, just to have my name in lights. What's important to me is that the purpose of it speaks to someone, speaks to their uh, condition. And I believe that that is the intention. The intention is to lift and encourage faith, family, and forgiveness have been the themes throughout all of my work. And... I felt like as long as I've stayed within that intention, then I've always landed among what I was supposed to be doing, where I was supposed to be doing it, and helping those whom I'm supposed to be helping. I think that it is important on so many levels to understand that wherever you intend to land in your thoughts, in your mind, in your heart, whatever your intention is, that is exactly where you will land. Biggest surprise of my life at 44, realizing that I've got a kid on the way. It was uh, shocking, a bit scary. And I didn't think I was going to have any kids. So to have this moment happen, I was like, uh, are you sure this is happening? She's like, yeah, we're, we're, this is happening. My fear, all of my fears are based, are based around my son and what this world will be when I'm no longer around for him. and. I want to be there to protect him in every move and every turn, and I want to catch him before he falls. I want to protect him from his first love and first heartbreak and things that I know I can't, that he'll have to endure, because I want him to have just enough pain to make him be an amazing human being, but not so much that it destroys and breaks his spirit. And I'm scared every day because I want to do it right. You get one shot to do it really right. I didn't know what to expect, but I can assure you that I've never loved like this in my life. I have never known this kind of worry and, and concern for the world that he's in. I have never known this kind of compassion for other humans, and I'm a pretty compassionate person. But once I've had my own child, my own, I mean, he looks, sounds, moves like me. He's my healer. He heals me and the little boy that I was every time I hug him. Every time we laugh and dance and talk and play ball, I'm not only hugging my son, but I'm also hugging myself. And those moments are so precious, so incredible, and so powerful, even at 47. I remember the man that I thought was my father he would tell my mother all the time, that boy's going to make you cry. That boy's going to make you cry. And he meant that in a way of as if I were going to do something horrible and terrible that would break her heart. And I remember one day in particular, she was, had come to one of my shows, and I had you know, retired her and done some great things to just make her happy, and she was sitting there, and she was in tears. And I started to cry. And I said to her, he always said I'd make you cry.
2: Mm, I love that story. Tyler's inspirational journey renews everybody who's around him, myself included. From the ashes of his brutal childhood grew a strong, a proud, and infinitely creative man. Tyler knows that it's his commitment, his sincere drive and commitment to his faith that has elevated his work and given him all of this great success. Yet with all that he's achieved, he still has that little boy in him from New Orleans with something special about him. He finds pleasure in giving back to his community and strives to bring his audiences, whoa, does he know and love his audience He strives to bring them joy and hope. Tyler, for just surviving, for innovating and doing it like nobody else, your own way, for making us laugh and feel inspired, you, my friend, are a master.
1: The gratitude is just so overwhelming that everything else takes a backseat. I sit in a seat of gratitude in every moment of it. And I know there are lots of people who wanted to be in this place, lots of people who could have and maybe should have, but for some reason, it fell on me to be here. And I have to honor it. I have to respect it. I have to work harder than anybody there. I have to stay later than anybody there because I've been given a great gift and a shot at this, and got to do my best. There will always be obstacles. There will always be struggles. There will always be things that try to deter you from where you're supposed to go. Now, what I know is that every bit of it was all there to make me a stronger person, to make me a better person. As as hard as that may seem, And sound for so many people, as hard as it may be to hear that for so many people, it is really the truth. My favorite scripture says, all things work together for them that love the Lord and are called according to His purpose, which clearly means that no matter what happens in your life, it can work together for your good. And living in that, believing in that, understanding that now, and knowing that, really knowing has changed my life in such a great way. So it's been learning in progress. It's been wonderful. It's been warm. It's been joy. It's been crazy. It's been amazing. But more than anything, it has been what I am supposed to do. Because what I want to, to be in life, to my son, to the people that I love, to the people that love me, is a place of inspiration and hope and someone who encourages and lifts. So my prayer is that I'm able to maintain in all of this, in all levels of this wonderful thing called success, but at the same time, be human enough to make mistakes and be flawed, but be strong enough that my mother would be proud.